Well, it isn't often the nation's chief spy is free to offer his thoughts publicly on his work. Officially, he's the Director General of ACES, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service. But as you'll hear, Paul Simon would prefer there was more of this public disclosure. During the week, I recorded a special interview with him in Canberra alongside my colleague from ABC News, John Lyons, who's Global Affairs Editor. Mr Simon will retire after his five-year posting finishes next week. In the same year, the agency, our version of uh, MI6 or the CIA, in the same year, it turned 70. It reports directly to the Minister for Foreign Affairs. What do we expect as citizens from the public servants who manage agents in the field to alert us to dangers to our national interests? As this turbulent century unfolds, posing shifts and threats we'd barely imagined, how does this agency fulfil its duties properly in a time of social media and changed expectations, among other things? Paul Simon came to the job five years ago after a distinguished career in the military, where he rose to become Major General. In our interview, we covered a lot of ground, external and internal challenges, issues like recruitment, uh, pose very interesting dilemmas, as you'll hear. And it was very good to welcome Mr Simon to the ABC's Northbourne Avenue Studios. Thank you, Geraldine. Thank you. How will you look back on this five years of yours at ACES? I think with pride of the achievements of the organisation. Uh, I think with a sense of relief um, because our people do difficult things and it's hard not to worry. I care about the safety of our people and in the five years that I've been in the job, certainly in the first couple of years because of a lot of work that we were doing in the Middle East, in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, even as recently as 12 months ago, of course, with the evacuation from Kabul, you know, I'm always relieved when our activities are completed and my people are back home safe, but also gratitude. You know, it's great gratitude, not only to my own people, but a range of, you know, people and institutions in Australia that help our organisation do what we do. So it's, I think, those three. Has there been a peak moment of worry? Uh, I think Kabul last year was very intense, a very, very difficult situation um, unfolding before the world. You know, I had people there. I had responsibilities and obligations to to sources uh, in Afghanistan that we needed to, to repatriate out of. Did you? Afghanistan. And we did. We were successful uh, at great risk and with great sort of uh, ingenuity, frankly, because it was such a difficult time and the risks were significant. But we did successfully achieve the mission that we sought for ourselves, in large part to give faith to and, and follow through with the compact that we have with our sources. They build a relationship with us. They take uh, our professionalism. Um, they, uh, you know, they, they sort of need to um, feel that our professionalism will protect them, protect their identities, um, and ultimately in a situation like that, uh, get them out of harm's way, including their families, and we we followed through with that compact. Now, listeners might say, well, they couldn't tell us that the Taliban were coming back, really. Uh, So, like, you know, isn't that their job as well? Uh, That's very true, and I think that um, we need to clearly reflect on uh, why the environment uh, moved so quickly from underneath our feet, and I I wish I could answer in really clear terms to your listeners exactly why that was. 
you know, war is a very, very complex activity. Human will, morale, motivation was swinging very, very quickly. And I think there were policies at play that caused uh, a lot of people to think very uh, carefully about what chances there were of being able to um, sustain the the will of the people and the will of the government. And, you know, it was, we, we learnt again uh, in conflict that morale, uh, willpower can shift very, very quickly. And um, so you're right. I mean, it's the job of intelligence agencies to help governments know and understand what is happening. I do think that we did a very good job. We certainly in the latter stages were able to help government know and understand what was going on, decisions made around the embassy and whether to uh, keep it open or keep it closed. From your vantage point as Director General, how would you characterise our changed world? I think that the changes that we're experiencing right now is that for the first time in my military career and my intelligence career, the prospect of major power conflict is no longer unimaginable. And I think that that is the, that's the reality of the situation at the moment. Major power conflict is no longer unimaginable. Now, I'm, I'm obviously um, channeling here what's going on in Europe. Um, I'm channeling uh, what is going on in our region. And of course, peace and stability is absolutely the number one priority of government and of all of the agencies like, like mine that support the government. After holding this position for five years and having access to the intelligence that you have had, mm. are you more fearful or less fearful for the future of your children and grandchildren? Um, I'm an optimist and I know that I'm talking about military and intelligence matters. I think that humans matter. You know, there is human agency in the calculations that leaders, the political leaders make about conflict peace and stability. And, you know, we know through history that leaders, statesmen, humans do have agency and we're not on a linear path. So to a degree, I think a lot of the assessment and analysis has to consider a linear path. If the current settings remain the way they are, what does that look like on a linear path? I remain a glass half full sort of guy. I would like to think that peace and stability continues to be the overarching underpinning of any parent, of any grandparent for their children or for their grandchildren and that ultimately um, that sentiment will prevail. What's the hardest part of working for ACES overseas and what makes a good ACES officer and agent? Uh, well, the hardest, the hardest part is simply um, that they are meeting with sources who are in some, uh, are undertaking activities for, for us, are trusting us, and if that is compromised, uh, places them in some peril. So that's the, that's the nature of, of our business. So what, what sort of skills are needed then? Well, we need, with the generation coming through, people that fundamentally have a high IQ and a high EQ, um, but they've got a low ego. I need I need quiet achievers because their successes will not be able to be broadcast. Uh, they need to be comfortable in their own skin. They need to be balanced. Uh, and I said low ego, you know, just, just sort of quiet achievers. It's interesting because this generation coming through and and I have tremendous young men and women coming into the organisation, but we do screen them for 
issues like to what extent social media and the centrality of their identity and personality is the focus of their their social media interactions. And I think we all make choices in life, but there are a lot of young people who use social media and social media platforms to make a statement about themselves. It's all about me. I, I am in the centre of the universe and I'm going to use these platforms to tell everyone, you know, my life story. Um, that doesn't work for... Uh, the sort of people that I need. I want people who use social media because it's such a rich medium for learning uh, around a diversity of issues beyond just your work and, and being a better person and a better balanced person and being able to weigh um, a whole range of competing, uh, you know, views. So I'm a great advocate of, you know, where we are with social media. I think the interesting thing for us is to what extent the type of, you know, the people that we want in the organisation how they how they think about social media and people with a big ego or narcissistic, we tend to uh, not introduce into the service because we've found through experience that um, there's a downside. If we were to have a broader conversation with the public about threats and possibilities, how would you like that to be held? Or would you like it to be held? Do you think it would behoove us yeah. to have a broader public conversation? Uh, look, I think so, because I think, as we've discussed earlier, I think that, you know, the, the risk of miscalculation, the risk of, of major power, or I, I, I use the term, it's, it's, it's no longer unimaginable, the prospect of major power conflict. I think it's more important than ever that the public be informed by people like me, by national security officials, um, and that we elevate, you know, to the comfort level of, of the government and, and broadly the public, elevate the discussion. I think that... More public, in other words. More public. And I think that, um, I think that will accelerate again early next year when um, Stephen Smith and uh, Sir Angus Houston present to the public. I'm, I'm in favour of more rather than less. And I would also add this, Geraldine, and that is I think that one of the hallmarks of the Russia-Ukraine conflict is the extent to which the US intelligence community in particular declassified intelligence. And it helped European governments in particular and the publics uh, better think about or understand, if you will, well, what should be an appropriate reaction to an incursion of that nature should we provide aid, either lethal or non-lethal aid? Should there be sanctions imposed? I think when you declassify intelligence in an appropriate way, you give the public an opportunity to really debate it and think about what's at stake here. And I think that was, I think what happened with, uh, in the early stages of Ukraine, Russia, has probably set the bar high for intelligence officials going forward to, to do what they can to help inform you know, not only government, but the public. Very interesting. I mean, that whole so social licence to operate, of course, is terribly important. And I have to ask you the question mm. about whether it was challenged by the whole issue of the East Timor Witness K, Bernard Kaleri case, which has only really uh, settled earlier this year. 
Mm. Now, if I can quote to you Gareth Evans uh, writing just recently um, uh, uh, in the Saturday paper about this, having been in charge of ASIS in the past when he was foreign minister, what is required from intelligence agencies, senior officials and their ministers in sensitive national security matters is above all balanced judgment. And that seems to have gone spectacularly missing in this case. Now, that's before your time, I know. Mm -hmm. But do you think it has done your reputation harm, uh, your agency's reputation harm? I think the issue that has really come to the fore, and I'll, I'll speak about, you know, I, I entered the fray, uh, as you say, that well, this happened before my time. But I'd make this comment to you, Geraldine. Firstly, uh, I am a great believer in open justice. I also hold statutory responsibilities, also in law, that it was designed from our formation back in 1952, but, but strengthened and clarified by Justice Hope in some signature work that he did in the 70s and 80s. And so really what we've been seeing play out in the last couple of years in this particular matter is this balance between open justice and between government's responsibilities for security and national security. And ultimately, you know, the government has decided to to drop the matter. And and my my comment would be that because I had to fulfil responsibilities, and because the because the law has a disposition to open justice, we only got as far in this matter as a judge, who's the appropriate person, not me, or government. A judge was trying to balance this on one on one hand open justice, and on the other hand in affidavits that I was presenting to the to the, the judge, the very real concerns that I had uh, in relation to this particular matter. And the judge, Justice Mossop, was, was dealing with these issues, I think, with great care and attention. My approach to um, the affidavits that I, I wrote absolutely and very centrally highlighted my respect for open justice as a key premise of our legal system. Um, but these are not absolute matters. Um, and it really fell to a judge. He was working through the process of how to deal uh, with sensitive information. And um, and we've now, uh, that the matter is, is closed. I think you just did also say, uh, very interestingly, at the Lowy, uh, that um uh, for officers who decide to opt out of an operation because they're uncomfortable with it, for instance, ethically, that you've given them an undertaking, quotes, it will not be detrimental to their career. I think that was quite a big statement from you. Yes, and, it's, um, and, and I can understand why that could be seen to be directly related to the, the matter that you were talking about. But it's, it actually was more to do with the nature of activities and operations in the time that I've been Director General. And because in the early days we would be um, working in Afghanistan and Iraq and we were dealing with military conflict, uh, the communication of intelligence that could lead to kinetic activity, and then more recently other actions that or activities that we're sometimes asked uh, to undertake. I have been very, very clear with my people that there is an ethical dimension to the work that we do. Um, the central tenets of the way we operate, the way we think, are legality, propriety and risk. I mean, that's, that's my life, managing legality, propriety and risk. But I have introduced into the service this ethical dimension. I brought in an ethics counsellor. I have said to my staff that if ever we ask you to do an activity uh, that makes you uncomfortable ethically, you should put your hand up and you, sh you should say that. And my undertaking back to those staff members is 
there will be no career detriment by you putting your hand up and saying you have a, an ethical dilemma. In return, I ask them to meet with the ethics counsellor and have a discussion. And the ethics counsellor has been trained at the St James Ethics Centre and undertaking significant study into ethics to help frame the discussion for the officer who's, who's uncomfortable. And uh, more often than not, off the back of that conversation, the officer will actually participate in the, in the activity. They've had that opportunity to actually think through and understand, if you like, the, the, the relationship between what's being asked of them and, and ethics both historically, you know, the, the philosophy of, of ethics and contemporary ethics and how, how to frame it in your mind. So we've put, put quite a, an investment and an effort into this. Locus of power, this phrase you've used several times, can you just help us understand a little more what you mean by that? I, I mentioned earlier on this idea of human agency. You know, humans matter, leaders matter. So the concept is very much, if you accept that premise, then leaders the political leaders, the economic leaders, the military leaders of those countries is of interest to us. As much as the defence material they might have, for instance? Yes. Well, in many ways, the material that they have, the equipment that they have, the capability is relatively easy these days to um, determine. And, and there are any number of open source uh, institutions, think tanks and the like that produce you know, extraordinarily rich um, reports on on capability, military equipment, acquisitions, all of those sorts of things. But it's the intentions of humans that we're trying to get to the, the bottom of. Mm. You know, the calculations that have been made by leaders really matters. I, I just finished reading a book called Abyss by Max Hastings, right. a historian. It's, it's fascinating. It goes back to the Cuban Missile Crisis of, of 62. And the, you know, human agency really, really mattered. What Khrushchev was thinking about, uh, what Fidel Castro, what was going through his mind, uh, and same with John Kennedy and the counsel that he had and the individuals even around Kennedy, that story, it's such a rich history. So humans matter. The capability unfolded before the Americans as they saw missile systems being... Uh, brought across the sea into into Cuba, but it was actually what was happening in these councils of of state around leaders and their thinking and the degree to which they were going to to roll the dice, which sort of to a degree Khrushchev was doing. And that's why you have to try to have people close to the locus of power. Indeed. Um, and um, so that's judgment, absolutely writ large, isn't it? It is judgment, and it's a, an activity that requires careful. Um, deliberation. It is designed, I talked before about, with all of the engagements and activities that we do, we think about propriety or legality, propriety and risk. And in in the risk space, the way we, the, the way we manage our risk is that in building any relationship, obviously it's in our interest to, to reduce the, the risk to a point where the benefits outweigh the risks. But there are situations where we look at a particular uh, instance where actually the risks are, are higher than the benefits and we won't proceed on that basis. Because you could be fed false information, Absolutely, you? yes. So we have, to, we have to validate, we have to go through a process of validation and if we feel that we, uh, or it's become clear through other techniques of validation that we have in the intelligence community that we're 
uh, that this individual might be narcissistic or might be the type of individual who feels that with this relationship he can build himself or herself up to be something more than they are. You know, we use, we have psychologists in the organisation, we use a whole range of techniques to understand motivation and to understand if you like, the integrity of the relationship that we're putting together here. From what you've seen sitting as Director-General, do you judge that the world's democracies are um, under threat or are they using the very intelligence sources you're describing to, in effect, reposition themselves quite effectively against autocratic regimes? That's a really good question. Uh, Geraldine, and I've said earlier that I'm a a glass half full person. I think that democracies, the richness of democracies is that they can um, adjust over time. And I think that um, that is underway. I think that democracies and, you know, we know the sayings about that's sort of the the most complex, most clunky, most difficult type of governance that you you can have. But but frankly, who would want to live in a better country than ours? And, And who would who would want to extinguish the sort of freedoms that we have? But it has great powers of adjustment. And I think that because of the nature of the security challenges right now, political leaders in democracies are seeking to build a better understanding and a rapport across the board, across government and with nations of understanding the challenges that we face. And, and I think that's um, terribly important. Uh, I think, of course, you know, if if I was the intelligence chief of many other countries, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. I wouldn't have the accountabilities and the governance that sits over me with the Inspector General, with my responsibilities to the Minister, to the Parliamentary Joint Committee of Intelligence and Security. There are many, many countries that don't respect the type of checks and balances that we have in our system. And so there is a competition underway and it will continue, I think, to get sort of starker and starker. Do you? I I do, I do. But I think that that at the end of the day, uh, people's desire for peace and stability, I think leaders' desire for peace and stability, and I think democracy's ability to be able to adjust its settings, to be able to deal with the challenges of the time, still leave me with a glass that's half full. In your assessment, having run ACES for five years, how serious is the security threat to Australia from China? You've singled out China, and I, I'm not going to single out any one country, but I've just explained, I guess, the richness of democracy, the powers of democracies to adjust. And I'm not sure whether China, uh, Russia, North Korea, a number of countries have the capacity to be able to adjust in the way that we do. I think that, sadly, intelligence officials in those sort of countries will say what they need to say to retain power. I think the sort of truth to power that we uh, encourage in our system should be sustained and and is an important component of the way that we can adjust as democracies. So, you know, I wouldn't single out China, but I would say there are two very stark sort of systems at play here, some very autocratic systems where, you know, the architecture of intelligence communities, of national security institutions is very, very vastly different to what we have. Obviously, though, China as our major customer is of interest to to a lot of Australians. 
Uh, it's also, you know, a troubled relationship has yeah. been for some time. Yeah. Do you think Australia can get to a footing where it, it has a good relationship with China without jeopardising any of our values or interests? I think that, um, well, it comes back to human agency, doesn't it? And, and, the, and the, uh, the centrality of leaders to adjust settings. You know, I think that for all the right reasons, 10, 15 years ago, um, the Australian public, the Australian government was very optimistic about its relationship with China. Um, business, very, very optimistic, and they had every right to be. You know, we were the beneficiaries um, of that relationship with, uh, with China. Um, what's changed? Well, humans have made calculations that have changed the nature of the relationship. So can we be optimistic? Well, you know, again, the crystal ball uh, is, is opaque on that front because at one level on a linear path, you know, it's hard to be as optimistic as we were 10 or 15 years ago. But I don't think these, uh, these issues follow linear paths. And I just hope that, you know, for our children and our grandchildren, we, we step off a linear path. And when I say we step off, I'm talking, you know, globally, the relationship between many nations place a little bit more emphasis on peace and stability. After a 42-year career in both the military and ACES, what do you think is the likelihood that in the next five or ten years Australia may end up in a, a war with China over Taiwan and would Australia, do you think, automatically um, join if the United States did? Um, well, on, on, on the latter question, I don't think anything is automatic. I think it's always got to be uh, put in context and, you know, and at the end of the day, an Australian government will always act in uh, the national interests, Australia's national interests, and um, I think everyone knows that. Any any political leader from any nation state in the world knows that ultimately they'll act in in the nation's uh, interests at the time. So so I don't know is the answer to I don't know the answer either to to either of your questions, John, because the suggestions that these things are preordained, they're not. There is ample license for leaders and humans to make a difference and to step up and to change the sort of paths and the settings that we're on. And, uh, and I guess that's been my message today is that I hope that that happens. Well, look, thank you very much indeed for uh, speaking to us. It's, it's uh, been fascinating to hear that overview from somebody in your position because we're not used to that. So thank you very much indeed, Paul Simon. Thanks, Geraldine. Thank you, John. Thank you. Paul Simon, the outgoing Director General of Australian Secret Intelligence Service, ACES, uh, together with my colleague, John Lyons. And uh, very much welcome your feedback. Thank you. Well, up next here on Saturday Extra, a Russian language news startup, which provides a service to those seeking to leave the country. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.